I'm a little out of my element. I'm a philosophy professor, and um, so this isn't uh, the, the, the usual place you would find an introverted philosopher. So if you would like to make me feel a little bit more at home, uh, a couple of you somewhere along the line, if you would start dozing off, and then somebody in the back, uh, pull out your laptop and start surfing the net. And then uh, maybe randomly somebody raise their hand and ask if any of this is going to be on the test. Um, I'll, uh, I'll feel like I'm in the right place. Um, John emailed me and, and said, um, we'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, coming and talking about intelligent design. And so I emailed back and said, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm not uh, part of the FDA, but I do believe in truth and labeling, so you ought to know where I'm coming from. Um, and I said, I, I know, you know, we're, we're getting into areas where, uh, where Christians can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable and a little bit contentious. And so I said, here's, here's where I am, and, and you tell me where you want to go from here. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm fully convinced that there is a God who is the intelligent designer of the universe. And I'm pretty confident that there are some awful strong arguments that we can make for that. However, uh, there is also the use of this phrase intelligent design to refer to uh, a scientific method. And I said, I don't think intelligent design works as a science. So John emailed me back and said, great, I think these are things we need to talk about. So I'm going to dive in to the waters head first, and we'll, we'll see where it all takes us. But um, let me talk about these, uh, the, these two meanings. Um, there have been arguments for God for um, over a thousand years that have noticed that uh, there's what, I, what you might call a uni in the universe. There's a oneness. There's something that holds it all together despite the diversity of the pieces. And it's pretty evident that uh, no human put all this together, but yet there's a strong interconnectedness and, and things work together. Things that seem very different work together. And out of this, there came the conclusion that there must be some sort of bigger divine reality that gave it shape and order, a, uh, a divine architect. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one meaning, and that's, that's the, uh, the, the approach that, that I embrace. But more recently, there has been this idea that, uh, that we can think of intelligent design as a scientific method and uh, teach it as a science. And uh, I'm not quite so sure that that works very well, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why that is later on. But anytime uh, we get into arguments, and, you know, that's, that's kind of my business, talking about things that humans have argued about for years. And uh, I, I try to say, now, what's really going on behind all of this? Why is it that, uh, you know, for centuries... Um, Christians have been happy to make this argument uh, as more of a philosophical, theological argument for an intelligent designer. Why is it now that uh, there's this attempt to push this into the realm of science? And here's my suspicion, and I'm not sure I'm right, but 
uh, I'm going to go with it. I think one of the things that, that drives this is that we've become convinced as a society that we can only say things are true when science says they're true. And so part of this is, uh, is just uh, going to be an examination of what science can and can't do. And I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, um, I, don't, I don't profess to be a scientist. I don't even play one on TV. Um, uh, but I have a great deal of respect for it. But I also think that there are limitations that we need to recognize. And, and so that will be an undercurrent of, of what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Uh, I remember in, uh, one of the lines in President Obama's inaugural speech in which he said, and in our administration we are going to restore science to its rightful place. Now, he didn't explain exactly what that rightful place was, but apparently I was the only one who didn't know because a lot of people were cheering wildly about that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't like uh, leaving unquestioned assumptions out there, and so that's kind of what we're going to do is, is ask the question, what is the rightful place of science, and, and where does it fit into our lives as Christians? So, um, uh, just kind of jumping to the conclusion and then going back and filling in the blanks. Uh, I, I, I do want to quote uh, Albert Einstein to make it sound like I know something about science anyway. Uh, at one point he said, as long as one remains within the realm of science proper, you can never meet with the statement of the type, thou shalt not kill. Okay, so to uh, paraphrase that in a little simpler language, he says that uh, science doesn't really have the tools to evaluate statements like uh, thou shalt not kill. That kind of falls outside. And to go on and address questions about the, the, the rightness or wrongness of killing or anything else, um, you're, you're, you're working outside of an area that uh, science just doesn't have the stuff in its toolbox for that. Uh, so uh, if... Um, uh, if I'm wrong, at least I have Albert Einstein on my side. And I, I, that puts me in a pretty good place. Uh, but let me talk about intelligent design as a science. Okay? Um, it starts with a really good question and one that science doesn't have complete answers to yet. And, uh, well, it actually starts with several of them. I'm, I'm going to focus on the one that tends to be most common. And that is the question of irreducible complexity, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. But uh, uh, irreducible complexity simply means that there are many systems in biological organisms that have to work together as systems. If one piece doesn't work, none of the system works. Okay, so this is why I stopped working on things. I remember the last time I took a car starter apart. <laughs> And I got it apart, put in the new piece, put it all back together, and I said, oh, this looks so cool, but why is that spring sitting over there? Okay, and I couldn't figure out where that spring went. And because that starter is a system that relied on all of these different pieces, the starter, what was supposed to be a starter, became a very awkward paperweight. 
you know, so uh, if one piece doesn't work, uh, isn't in there in the right place, nothing works. Okay, so think about uh, uh, systems within your body, like, uh, like your ocular system, you know, what you need to see. There's a whole bunch of stuff that has to come together and work just right and um, damage to any one of several parts uh, makes it impossible for it to come together or our reproductive systems, stuff like that. And so uh, let's go back and, and think about how evolution is supposed to work. It's supposed to work by, by mutation within a particular part of some organism. And so the, the really difficult problem for evolutionary biology is what do you do when the various pieces evolve very, very slowly, sometimes over thousands of generations in less complex organisms? But yet, in order for that piece to do its job, all of these other pieces have to be mutating and changing in the same way, in the same rate, because uh, according to evolutionary biology, for every one beneficial mutation, there are thousands of them that are non-beneficial, and, and if they're non-beneficial, whichever organism has that trait is less likely to reproduce and pass on that, that, uh, that mutation. Boy, uh, I, I didn't want all of you to fall asleep. Okay, just a couple of you. Okay, so that, that's kind of how it's supposed to work, okay? And, and so the question is, if all of these things have to be mutating at the same time and at the same ratio, kind of in relationship to each other, how can you get these highly complex systems like reproductive systems or systems of sight? So that's a big problem, okay? And so a lot of folks have said, well, intelligent design is the answer. There's a God who... Uh, uh, just goes poof, and these systems are there. And then once the systems are there, they may go through some sort of change. Uh, but the system has to be in place for it to work. Okay, now, uh, as a theory uh, of how that works, you know, that God puts it together, I have no problem with that. Uh, like I said, I think God's an intelligent designer. But I'm not sure that it works as science, because if you will scan back through your mind, maybe to seventh grade, you may remember the various steps of the scientific method. Okay, step number one, ask a question. So the question in this case is, uh, how do we get these highly complex interactive systems throughout any sort of biological organism? When... Uh, evolution has a hard time answering that. So it's a good question. Good question. Um, step number two, do the background research. You see, I have to look at my notes because I was asleep during seventh grade science. <laughs> do the background research. Uh, so you do the research and you say, yeah, you know, um, uh, I'm not sure how all this works out in terms of evolution. Are there other answers for that? Okay, so far so good. Construct a hypothesis. So in this case, the hypothesis, was, hypothesis would be that, uh, well, there was an intelligent designer who built these systems into all sorts of organisms, ourselves included. That sounds like a good hypothesis. We're sailing along in good shape until we get to step four. Test your hypothesis by doing an experiment. Okay, now... I don't know about you, but I'm not sure how you get God into a test tube. 
uh, how do you experiment with God? And you get to the next step, and it says, analyze your data and draw a conclusion. Well, again, I'm not sure how God works as a datum in a scientific experiment that you can repeat over and over and over again. Okay? So what I'm trying to get at is that um, uh, I don't know that it works as science. But I'm also not sure that that's a big problem because, as I'm going to talk about, I just think there are a lot of questions that science doesn't answer very well. It doesn't have the tools. You know, if, if, uh, you know I'm, I'm glad they're out there doing that stuff because, uh, you know, I've got certain, <laughs> certain genetic baggage that I carry around from my uh, ancestors, like cancer and Alzheimer's which I think may be a pretty good combination because when I get cancer, I won't remember that I have it. Um, so I would like the scientists to be doing their things. and They've got pretty spiffy tools for that. But uh, I'm not sure that this is a question that it, it can really answer. But, uh, and, and let me talk briefly about some of the, the gaps I think uh, uh, science has in its toolbox, uh, some of the things that give rise to... Uh, uh, this question of the, the intelligent designer. Uh, first of all, we do have this, this question of complexity. How do, how do things get to this state if, it's, if the only answer, the only tool you have is evolution? Uh, the second thing I'd like to point out is that um, uh, a lot of scientists may not be- believe in an intelligent designer But in order to be scientists, they have to believe in the intelligibility of the universe. Okay, I want you to hear that. Uh, See, science doesn't work unless the universe is intelligible, unless it makes sense. Because if you had plant a seed over here and an Oldsmobile would sprout, uh, and every time you planted a seed, you had no idea of what was going to happen if everything was random, you can't do science, can you? you have to assume that there's a certain order and predictability to the universe, that it's intelligible. And so science uses those laws that we call the laws of nature. But here's what science can't help us with. Can't help us, it can't help explain where those laws came from. So the very thing that gives the universe its structure and order and rationality, science assumes, but it can't explain. It doesn't have the tools for that either. So, uh, um, and it can't really explain where the stuff came from that uh, is part of what we call nature. Um, Also, what I want to do is spend a little bit of time talking about what a purely naturalistic evolutionary process of, uh, of origins would look like. And I've spent some time... Uh, looking at the, the the writings of those who have have done this, so let me kind of give their their uh, um, uh, their explanation of this. Okay, Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the most famous new atheists, starts off one of his sections by saying, "In the beginning, <laughs> knowing that people would recognize that phrase, in the beginning was simplicity." And in this simplicity, all you have are simple elements, compounds, and some sort of primordial soup. Now, right off the bat, he doesn't explain where the soup came from. It's there, and it's simple. 
And as part of this, some of the molecules within this soup began to combine. Okay? And somewhere out of this, this combination, and again, this is one of those explanatory gaps that science, uh, scientists sometimes think, well, we'll get it figured out sometime, but we don't know how it works, but it happened. Somehow, these lifeless molecules came together, and out of that coming together, there was this thing called life. Now, again, that's kind of a tricky question. How do you get life out of dead stuff? Um, but somehow that happened. And some of these molecules developed a particular trait. And that trait was the ability to reproduce themselves. And in the most simple organisms, which is all they had back then, was uh, uh, reproduction by splitting. Okay? Now, Dawkins tells us that there's a genetic code in this that uh, allowed for the two things that these, these molecules wanted to do. They wanted to survive and they wanted to reproduce. Uh, again, no word about where the rules came from that govern that, but, but he refers to the, the code within these simple organisms that allows them to do this as the selfish gene. All they're concerned about is staying alive and making more of themselves. Now, uh, somehow or another, these simple organisms found out that they had a better chance of, of surviving if they built what Dawkins calls survival machines. Uh, at first, those were coatings to protect them from environment, and later on, they became bodies like ours. So uh, at one point, Dawkins says, uh, we are our genes, and our bodies are their survival machines. <coughs> kind of rhymes. Um, now, in this process... He says, um, we began to develop this thing that uh, we generally call intelligence. Uh, and this arises out of social structures. So, uh, uh, we began to gather uh, organisms in general. The more advanced ones began to gather together in herds and gaggles and flocks. Uh, because we found out somehow or another through instinct that our chances of survival are usually better in groups. Okay, and out of this group stuff began to arise this thing called intelligence, where we could begin to think about the world in ways that we could more, uh, uh, that we could do a better job at uh, protecting our survival. And out of this comes culture and language and those sorts of things like that. So uh, they would argue that, uh, that our genetic code is responsible for all of the cap uh, capacities of human beings. Uh, because if we can communicate better, we get an idea of what others' intentions are, plans, and we can form strategies for s survival and all that other stuff. Now he said, here's a little hitch in the plan. And that is, once we develop intelligence, something happens to us. And that is, we figure out that we're going to die. And uh, so Dawkins would say, that's what's kind of unusual about humans. Uh, deer and porcupines and aardvarks are all going to die. They're mortal beings, but they don't know it. 
Uh, but we humans, as we develop intelligence, begin to figure that out. So the fact that we know we're mortal pre- presents a problem for our drive for survival. Why bother? And so what did we do with our intelligence? Well, uh, Dawkins and E.O. Wilson and uh, Hitchens would say, we created religion. So <laughs> that, that, that's how much they're at least willing to give us that religion came out of intelligence. Uh, uh, but uh, it, was, it was ultimately a delusion. It had to delude us into thinking that there was a life after this one to get us to go on living in this life. So our genes are playing a trick on us. But then another problem comes up, and that is, uh, and, and again, this is uh, Dawkins and Hitchens' uh, sort of argument. This isn't mine. They said, along the line, our, our intelligence also discovered something else called science, which tells us that religion is wrong. So now what are we going to do? Because we're, we're a goofed up mess. Uh, so we've got a bit of a problem here because A, we know we're mortal. B, we know that as biological organisms, the clock's going to run out and we're going to die. Uh, and there's no hope for anything other than that. Uh, another thing we discover, if they're right, is that we are accidents. Um, because of the processes of evolution, the fact that humans would arise as a species is simply an accident. Um, the odds were very much stacked against us surviving or coming into existence. So, so we're accidents. Um, that uh, there is no real purpose for our life other than what we decide. Um, our morality is a trick foisted upon us by our genes. Uh, it's not about right and wrong. It's really about survival. Uh, and also we discover that we're total slaves to our genetic code. And finally, in addition to this going on back, nobody has really told us where the stuff in the primordial soup came from or why there are certain laws in place that will govern why evolution does what it does. So that's just a very long, complex way of saying, I don't think we um, uh, get very satisfactory answers just from a purely evolutionary perspective. Okay? So let's go back to the intelligent designer. Here's, um, here's one thing I'm convinced of. In a lot of Christian circles, I hear a lot of talk about this, but is that really what we want or really what we need? Um, let me just give you an example. I can go back and read Plato and Aristotle, and I do because I'm a nerd, um, and they have a doctrine of intelligent design. I can read Anaxagoras. I can read the 18th century deists. They've all got an intelligent designer. (coughs) But this isn't a god that you worship. It is a rational force, but it's not a god who desires to save us. So is an intelligent designer really what we want? And then I turn to my Bible, and I see something rather astounding. It proclaims that God is the designer of the universe. And the, the scripture passage that was read up here was one of the most beautiful expressions of that. It doesn't argue for it. It, it proclaims it. Um, but it proclaims something else. Um, it proclaims 
a mystery that I really don't understand. And I mean, my, my, my business is dealing with hard questions, but here I kind of reach the end of uh, my resources. Um, I'm thrilled to know that God is the designer of the universe. And how all that happens, how God does that, uh, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit lost on that. But it gets even trickier because when we think about our situation, here's, here's kind of where logic leads us. We are one, each one of us is one of about six and a half billion people on this planet. This planet is the third rock from the sun in a solar system that sits within a galaxy that dwarfs it immeasurably. And our galaxy, as inconceivably large as it is, is one of hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And my Bible tells me that despite the total, um, uh, I don't know, the infinite smallness of me, that God still knows me and cares about me and came for my salvation. Uh, Even more so, as Romans tells us, when we were still in a state of rebellion. Now, that's a mystery. Um... An intelligent designer uh, doesn't do that sort of thing. An intelligent designer is a big enough mystery, but a God who comes uh, to, uh, a God who simply speaks and all these galaxies appear, the fact that that God is concerned about me and bringing me into relationship with him, that's an even bigger question. And so while I think these questions are really great, how did it all get here and is there a God behind it? I'd also say that sometimes they can become a smokescreen where we try to keep God out there on the intellectual level, a problem we can figure out. Something that, uh, you know, handles nature. But God tells me he's not just the God of nature, he's the God of creation. Okay, what's the difference there? Well, nature, as we use the term, is just stuff that is. It's out there. But creation is different. We just don't just make. We make with a purpose when we create. So the first verb in the Bible is create. In the beginning, God created. There's a purpose to this. The amazing thing is God draws me into that purpose. And so in the end... uh, As important as figuring out some of these intellectual questions might be, and as fun as it is, what Scripture tells me is that uh, ultimately my knowledge of God as the creator, not just an intelligent designer but a creator, should drive me to say things like this, all-powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall on our knees as we humbly proclaim, You are amazing, God. Amen. One of the questions that we're going to be asking all these professors, because because it just fascinates me how you you can spend all this time in philosophy and these questions and Aristotle and stuff that I've never read or cared to read. Um, That's sinful. And the uh, Bible. And, you know, I, I know... 
I know who you hang out with at Azusa. How, with all of this and all this stuff going on, how do you keep a personal relationship with God? You know, because these questions are so big. How, how do you stay fresh when you open the word to go, oh man, this is, this is for me. How, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Maybe the place I would start is to say that when I read the Bible, it says to love God with heart, mind, soul, and body. Mm. There's an and in there, so I'm assuming that's not a multiple choice sort of thing. <laughs> and so um, the, the work I do as a scholar, if I'm doing it well, is also an act of worship because I believe that God's the creator of this mushy gray stuff that sits inside my cranium and, and yours. And um, that with everything that we have, we are to worship God. And so this is, is one facet of, uh, of giving back to God in gratitude what he's given to me. Mm. Um, now, I also strive to make this a, an integrated and holistic yeah. um, sort of thing. But... We can't leave our brain behind, and, and one of the tragedies for me is that um, there, uh, there's sometimes an assumption that, uh, that Christians just aren't up to it intellectually, and, and sometimes within the church we sanctify stupidity, hmm. and I think that's sinful. Okay, let me just rephrase that, I'm re- okay. repeat that, because <laughs> you said you think sometimes we sanctify stupidity. Do you, I agree with that statement. Do you think it's because we're so afraid to be wrong, we don't want to continue to just keep exploring? Or do you think it's because we're just lazy? Uh, That could be part of it. Yeah, that last part. Uh, But but here's the thing. Um, Maybe a place to start. We as Christians are told that we have the truth. And so to get into some of these messy areas where we're not sure makes us pretty uncomfortable, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I recognize that discomfort. But here's another thing. A lot of times we forget that truth isn't just a noun. It's also an adjective and an adverb. Mm-hmm. Okay, so whatever truth we have, we have to also arrive at it truthfully. In other words, we need to think things through carefully, and we need to be honest about what we don't know. And so, um, yeah, a a lot of times we're embarrassed by the fact that we don't know all the answers. Um, Now, I'm not sure I get that embarrassment because any good statement of faith within Christianity will tell us we're finite and and, and sinful and fallen. And so I kind of assume that as part of my fallenness, I'm not going to have all the answers. Mm. And, and it's, it's okay for me to say that, hey, I don't have all the things worked out. And, yeah. And it yeah. seemed to me what you, were, what you were getting at when you were talking was, look, I, I don't have it all, all figured out. But if we press your faith in science, we'll probably find you don't have it all figured out either. And yeah. so in order to try and make the jump of like, look, what, what we're saying is science, maybe we don't want to necessarily hang our hat on something that isn't quite stable in and of itself anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad you put the words faith and science together because uh, my, 
<laughs> my standard statement is that everybody lives by faith. Uh, a, a scientist is, uh, this is another way of restating what I said, uh, a scientist has to have faith that whatever laws there are out there that govern nature will still be the same tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there are no scientific tools or tricks that will prove that, that, uh, that those laws even exist, let alone will remain constant. But yet the principle of uniformity is one of the most basic um, uh, underpinnings of, of science. Mm. Okay. Here, here's a great question. You mentioned planets and galaxies, and since you're a philosopher, <laughs> see, we, this is what they do. They try and trap you with okay. these kinds of questions. Um, they didn't put philosopher in quotes, though, so that's good. Okay. Uh, wh- what do you think God had planned for all those planets and galaxies and stars? You, you're saying there's a purpose. Is it just to show, yeah, I can pretty much do all this, too, you know? <laughs> Yeah, is it a spiffy little parlor trick? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a good question, and this is one of those places where I'd love to retreat into my, I don't know. <laughs> but but here's, here's my suspicion, okay? This is a place to start, and it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but it's a place to start. God seems to be a God of extravagance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his grace to us is just, over and above what is reasonable. <laughs> I, I don't even know that any grace is reasonable. But, uh, you know, it's, it's extravagant grace. And I'm wondering if the, the, the whole magnitude of the universe isn't a way just to say, um, <laughs> in any way you try to trap me within the boundaries of your understanding, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to blow out the seams mm. because, uh, you know, I, I, I just can't even fathom how massive this, this universe is. And so, um, you know, it's, it's the answer that I think uh, uh, you get. Well, one of the songs we sang this morning had a lot of allusions to Job uh, 39 through mm-hmm. chapter 41, 42. Uh, where God speaks to Job in the whirlwind and, and asks him a bunch of questions that are just unanswerable. Yeah. Uh, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. <laughs> oh, I was actually... Oh, yeah. no, I wasn't. Yeah. 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 That's when I was growing up in Kansas. So, uh, <laughs> we missed that part. Um, yeah, and I think those answers in many ways... Don't answer Job's questions yeah. on the intellectual level because on every one, Job had to just kind of say, I don't know, yeah. I wasn't there. Yeah. I, I don't get all this. I don't know where the storehouses of snow are, are and all this other stuff. Right. But on the other hand, Job <laughs> came to know something even more important. Mm. Um, he knew that he was being confronted by the immutable all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-gracious God. And so he falls on his knees in repentance. And that's that's pretty important knowledge. That's very Uh, important. Knowing who we are. Uh, One of the things I get to do at the university is I get to read T-shirts. As as we say there, it's not just an education, it's a wardrobe. (laughs) Um, But 
uh, one great t-shirt a number of years ago that had part of the Shema on the front. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, that's cool. And then he walked by, and on the back it said, and you ain't him. <laughs> that's great. And by the time it was all done, Job knew that he wasn't God. He knew who he right. was. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. I got, it looks like we have time for a couple more, and then we'll... Um, here, here's a good one. Um, you know, when, when, when people challenge our, our faith or our belief, you know, obviously we're going to, you know, we're told to, to be ready to give an answer to a- anybody and, and mm-hmm. to have our faith worked out. But is there a way you would suggest to us that we approach someone who's saying, look, what you believe, it's a crutch, it's stupid, it's, it's unscientific. Is there a way you would suggest that we approach somebody who's kind of coming from a, uh, a challenging, maybe combative uh, mm-hmm. position? Well, yeah, there are a number of suggestions. That, that the problem is a lot of these will take some time and building relationships, so maybe that's the place to start. That's excellent point. <laughs> but uh, part of it is is to be ready to answer those on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. But also part of it is I, I often find when I get that sort of response, the question that gets at the real issue quite often is uh, who was it in the church who pounded you in the, into the dirt at some point. Hmm. Because a lot of times behind the, the question that sounds like an intellectual question is someone you know, who has been abused and treated badly or marginalized. Hmm. Um, so sometimes there's some probing to do. Hmm. Um, so our, our answer needs to be as holistic as the faith. We need to be ready with the intellectual answers and to say, well, here's, here, here's why I think this makes sense. Also, if you run your answer out to the logical conclusions, this is what you're left with. Sure. Uh, so I think you need to do that. Um, I think we need to build those relationships and, um, and embody Christ's love because... I do find those those folks who who have intellectual hurdles to to cross on their way to Christianity, but the vast majority of people, uh, their hurdles are more just uh, seeing folks who will embody the love of Jesus and who will embrace them and and walk with them and listen to them and yeah and uh, and sometimes say I'm sorry for all the goofy things that we do in the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, we'll, we'll just end with this one. Um, you know, natural selection, um, you know, it, it, right now it's just a given that, you know, uh, the strong survive and all this kind of stuff. And, um, I, I was watching the, Disco- I love the discovery channel mm-hmm. like too much. Um, okay. Yeah. And, would you pray for me right now? Okay, no. Uh, well, but, somebody's going to have to go pray for both yeah. of us because I'm over there a lot too. And so, uh, and so uh, you know, you watch and you see, you know, everything's just down to the strongest will survive. And yet you were talking about um, just this, uh, I'll watch that and then I'll watch if we lose the plankton, we all die. So mm-hmm. it's like it's like this this fragility and yet the strongest survive and yet... Plankton aren't the strongest. I mean, maybe a number or whatever, but how do you, how do you kind of talk about that particular issue? Because that's kind of something that's just a given really now in school. And this was sent by someone in school. Okay. 
Well, yeah, I'm not sure what piece of that to pick up on. But um, uh, one of the things about natural selection or survival of the fittest is that the way it works is the fittest is determined by its environment. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the way it works within the theory. So a polar bear is a big, hairy, strong critter, uh, but it's not very fit for the Amazon, so its survival opportunities wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be there very well. So that's, that's one of the things that mm. goes on there. And, but, but what it draws in is this notion that we are a part of a bigger system. Mm-hmm. And all of that system participates within God's creation. Nothing stands outside of it. And so within that, I think we have a mandate uh, to be creation people, uh, to, to care about how it all fits together, because God cares about it. And so one of the things that happens to me as I read through uh, the, the, the Genesis story is after each of these moments of creation, you know, God looks at it and says, this is cool. <laughs> that's, that's my paraphrase from the Hebrew. Uh, but when it's all done, that gets hyped up. It's not just good, it's very good. Mm. So I think there's a very goodness about the, the, the system, the system, interconnectedness, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and the fact that it, it fits together. There is that uni in the universe. Right, right. And so I, I, I think there's, that, that, that's part of our spiritual mandate, yeah. to be aware of our interconnectedness and our responsibility. Yeah. Because, you know... That's what Adam and Eve are, you know, they're middle management, uh, <laughs> stewards, you know. They have a responsibility for what's below them to, uh, because they don't own it. Hmm. We don't own it, folks. <laughs> we're, we're stewards and we're answerable to the owner. And Very good. Good. We're going we're gonna to end there. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's really been an honor. Thank you.